Seeing home doesn't help us get there, Captain. This is the rewatchables <laughs> Dunkirk. You can practically see it from here. What? Home. We have a job to do. Welcome to the Rewatchables Dunkirk. My name is Sean Fennessy. I am joined by two guests today, the ringers Chris Ryan and a special guest, Quentin Tarantino. Hello. Welcome to the Rewatchables, sir. Good to be here. Thank you. You know, Quentin, you and I were talking a little bit about this show, and Mm -hmm. you made some suggestions for movies you wanted to do. And before we get into the nitty-gritty of Dunkirk, I think we just got to start with why Dunkirk for Rewatchables episode? This is a movie that only came out two years ago. I guess it was because in the last month or so, I've been getting obsessive about making my top 10 list of the decade, mm-hmm. of, the, of the 2010s. So I found myself uh, uh, watching, a, watching a bunch of stuff like a second time or a third time that I hadn't watched in years and really, really pitting the movies against each other, uh, watching things that I, I just missed. I'd always heard they were good, but like something like Logan, which I never got around to seeing. I finally got around to seeing it to see how it could fit. And um, it was in watching Dunkirk a third time making my top 10 list that I think I had had it preliminary at seven and it jumped up to number two. Wow. <laughs> after I saw, after I saw it the, the third time and I was just really kind of caught. Uh, so, so when we started talking about different movies to, to see, that was definitely one that I, I had just completely f- brand new, fresh passion for. And Frankly, I'm not just, I'm not that uh, used to being that passionate about a movie that new. <laughs> so, yeah. so I was, so, and, and I actually thought it would just, it would, it would play great as a rewatchable. And I didn't even know, I didn't even have a whole like spiel to say about it either. So uh, that's, that's one of the things I thought would be kind of fun to just really explore it. Yeah. When you first suggested it, I was a little challenged by it. I have complex feelings about Christopher Nolan's films. Um, Chris adores yeah, unabashedly. Christopher Nolan's yeah. films. Chris, you want to give me a little bit of uh, your immediate reaction to the film when you first saw it and maybe where you are with it <laughs> you now? Said, I thought you were saying, well, Chris Nolan adores Christopher <laughs> Nolan film, <laughs> which, well, I think is sure actually, which I think is very true. I'm sure that's right. <laughs> I'm positive that's right. He's within his rights to that. <laughs> uh, my, my first reaction when I saw it? Yeah. Yeah, I saw it down the street at Arclight, and I think I just said, like, it, I, it blew my brains out. Like, I just think it's one of the most overwhelming physical experiences I've had at a movie theater. And uh, it definitely just feels like it's shot on God's tripod. And nothing <laughs> gives you a sensation of like, I don't know, there's, there's very few films that give me this sensation of like, I understand the enormity of the physical setting that this is where this is taking place. And you, you know, those first shots of Hardy's uh, trio of Spitfires flying over the channel. And you're like, the earth is fucking amazing and dangerous. And this guy is taking in the elements with his filmmaking. And that really, you can feel that the entire time so that once you start actually, like, it's actually on rewatch that you start processing the chronology and all the temporal stuff that he's doing. I'm going to just do some details of this movie before we dive right into our serious conversation. So the movie is obviously written and directed by Christopher Nolan. The cast includes a series of relative unknowns, including Fian Whitehead, Tom Glenn Carney, Jack Loudon, 
a little man named Harry Styles, a Nuren Barnard, James Darcy, Barry Keown, and then Kenneth Branagh, Killian Murphy, Mark Rylance, and Tom Hardy round out the cast. Very well known. Scores from Hans Zimmer. It's an important part of this movie. I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about it here. Warner Brothers released the movie on July 21st, 2017. With the exception of the occasional recent history classic, I would say this is the earliest we've come to yeah. a movie, aside from your sort of A Star is Born. We looked at that right away. Mm-hmm. $150 million reported budget, $526 million at the box office. It won Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Film Editing at the Oscars. Had five other nominations, including Picture, Director, Cinematography, Score, Production Design, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, which of course we know means nothing. <laughs> now, wait, you quoted that? You're holding like, <laughs> well, I'm just- I Don't care, don't care, now you're quoting it. I'm just it. trying to stick to the, to the script yeah, here, you know? Okay. <laughs> There's no, there are no Roger Ebert quotes, unfortunately, oh, yeah, yeah, for this yeah. film. So I'm just I'm always wondering why you guys are quoting Roger Ebert as if he's Aristotle. I mean, if it was <laughs> Andrew Saras or Pauline Kale, maybe. Well, it's because we have, a, we have an emotional and intellectual war with our common co-host, Bill Simmons, yeah. who- Because you can easily go on RogerEbert.com and find out what he said. Yes, great. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, nevertheless, you know, this is a movie about the dramatic and true story of the Dunkirk evacuation during World War II in 1940. And it's one of the most intense war films ever made. Quentin, upon revisiting it, did it feel even more rewatchable to you after that third time you'd seen it? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I had a, like Chris, I had a very interesting uh, experience with it the first couple of times. Um, The first time I saw it, was one of those special screenings where it's uh, um, there's this thing that happens in Hollywood when Chris Nolan finishes a movie. He has this special screening for directors, and he usually has it at the um, Universal City Walk yeah. uh, IMAX theater, and it's like at nine in the morning or something. And literally, everybody from the directors guilds there. You know, you you go to see it, and you know, Michael Mann is sitting there, and Walter Hill is over there, and Paul Thomas Anderson is there, and um, so. I watched the film then with all those guys. And um, now having seen it four times, I don't know what I was thinking the first time because uh, 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 like you said, it just, I just dealt with the spectacle of it all. I, I couldn't deal with anything else but the spectacle of it all. And 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 frankly, I I really liked the movie, but the spectacle almost numbed me. To the uh, to the experience, I don't know if I have felt anything emotionally because of the spectacle. I was just kind of awed by it, but I don't even know what I was awed by. Frankly, yeah. to tell you the truth, did you find it confusing at all? Because it's obviously told in this three part style: one week, one day, one hour. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Did, did, were you able to understand the plotting specifically? Not per se, but I don't even think that first time that I was even noticing that much of a plot. I was actually, I was just going from emotion to emotion, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, and so so there was no confusion as far as that was concerned. Uh, I kind of had, a, I kind of had a, a, a good sense of, the, of uh, the people we were cutting around to. And there was, and like I said, I've seen it since then. There's like all this stuff that I didn't get, all this stuff that I didn't really understand mm-hmm. to the degree that I did after I've saw it a few other times. But, you know, it was interesting, though, that that experience. I remember talking to the time my fiance about it. I go, wow, it was really that was really something. But I didn't really have anything more to say other than that. Then we went to the arc light the weekend that the movie opened. Not to see that. We wanted to see the last of the Planet of the Eight movies. And it's this one little theater. Every other, every other screen it's is Dunkirk, showing Dunkirk. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I was a little surprised by the Dunkirk fever that was going on in the Arclight lobby. For sure. That, yeah. that weekend. 
I mean, everybody was seeing it. Yeah. And everybody was excited about it. And literally was it literally was playing in almost every other theater except for the one showing War of the Planet of the Apes. And you know, all the people along the bar, everybody was there to see Dunkirk. And I go, oh, good for Chris, man. That's pretty cool. Anyway, a few weeks later, I found myself in England. And I had a day that I was just kicking around Piccadilly Circus. And um, I had just bought, because I was like, I'll, I'll see a show while I'm here in the West End. And I bought a ticket to see the Meatloaf jukebox <laughs> musical that they had going on. Bad Out of Hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad Out of Hell. Yeah. And uh, I had no illusions I was going to like it, but I like Meatloaf's music. And so I wanted to see the thing. And, uh, but if you've ever been to Piccadilly Circus, there's that one huge theater that's at the end of the, that big square. Yeah. And so Dunkirk was playing there. And the big Dunkirk, you know, uh, marquee was, you could see it from a mile away. And I was like, huh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll see Dunkirk here. This is, England sounds like a really, London sounds like a really good place to see Dunkirk. And uh, I could see this again. And so I went to the box office and there's like no way I'd be able to get to the meatloaf show by the time this thing was over. And I decided, F it, I'll forget the meatloaf show. I'll, I'm just going to commit to seeing Dunkirk a second time. So, uh, you scalped the meatloaf tickets or did you? No, just- no, no. I just uh, <laughs> ate it. You know? And so the thing is, I'm, um, there's a, uh, uh, young guy at the box office and I'm, and I go, yeah, I'm going to see the, what it was like the 550 or something of, uh, Dunkirk. And he goes, Oh, good one. Good one. You're going to really like it. You're going to really like it. You're going to really like it. You know? And, uh, uh, so he sold me the ticket and, and then, uh, uh, I go to the young gal who's tearing the ticket and she's maybe 19 or something, you know? And, uh, and, uh, uh, she was, Oh, so what are you seeing? You know, she's, so she recognizes me. She's excited that I'm coming to the theater. Oh, what are you seeing? I'm going to go see Dunkirk. Oh, it's smashing. You'll love it. You know? <laughs> and then, um, So I'm already walking in the theater with this really sweet vibe of like, wow, these are like young people. There's a British young people, but they really responding to this movie. They're, they're really liking it, but it's more than they really like it. They're proud of it. Yeah. 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 They're proud of it. They're, they're, they're proud that a British movie about a British event was made and they're just proud of it. And it, it was one of the sweetest feelings I'd had going into a movie in quite a while. And then I felt it with everybody in the audience, everyone in the theater. I had a really, I'm, I, we're all watching this movie together. And, and there was something about seeing Dunkirk in London that really just kind of tipped the scales for me. But even then, even that second time, I was still taking in the spectacle. I still couldn't get past the spectacle, but I appreciated the spectacle more. I saw how the spectacle worked a little better. I saw how the engines worked, and I appreciated that. It wasn't until that third time where I was gauging it uh, for the top of the of the of the 2010s that I finally could see past the spectacle into the people, into the people yeah. the story was about. I didn't lose the spectacle, but I now finally could see the forward. I could see through the trees. A little bit. Well, it's so interesting that you say that because in a lot of ways, Nolan's a is a director without a country, or at least had been, right? Like this is by far his most British film for a, for a British native. It was it's sort of odd that not a lot of his other work deals with the English national character at all or English history. And his American American quote unquote films 
have a degree of otherness to them. Like they don't necessarily feel like the characters in his movies don't feel like New Yorkers or, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think that he even has. Well, he spent some time growing up in the States. Sure. Right? I, I think yeah, that yeah. that shows, you know, yeah. but like there isn't, there isn't like a feeling of like the recklessness or vulnerability that you may like ascribe to like an American character or even American director that, you know, British, but the British, he doesn't quite feel like a British director either. And this is such a love letter to. I mean, when you watch a, a, a um, Shaun of the Dead by uh, Edgar Wright, yeah. I mean, that feels like somebody who grew up in London For and like sure. they are yeah. talking about, they're talking about what they know about, about layabouts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. it's entrenched. All the yeah, culture is there. Exactly. Yeah. It's a funny thing because. I think that the Dunkirk evacuation is a fascinating thing to look at. I think in part, Quinn, what you're saying is totally true, which is that in a British theater it would make much more sense because that event is so deeply ingrained in the character of the people who live in that country and it's 80 years old and yet there's still an awareness of it. In States, I don't think we know very much about that. Yeah. Even though there have been movies made about mm-hmm. it or tangentially related to it, it had been a long time since we'd seen it on screen. And I think that that was more that feeling in the arc light that you guys are both describing mm-hmm. was Nolan, the Nolan effect that he yeah. has mm-hmm. – a kind of there's an awareness about when he does something, it's a big deal. It's meaningful, and this is the first time he had done something in a while that wasn't science fiction or wasn't in the comic book realm. And that also was kind of portrayed. It was kind of pitched to us as audience members as a, an event, as a throwback event that we all needed to see, and it, it really worked. I mean, yeah. so many people went to go see this movie. Chris, your father was British. Yeah. Did you have an awareness of? Dunkirk? Well, he was born in 42, uh, and his father was in the RAF. So uh, he, there was definitely, like, talk about it. And just in my family in general, there was I, – I feel like I grew up with a pretty distinct awareness about World War II, both from my mom's side because her father was a, a captain in, in the Red Cross. And then from my dad's side, I never really knew my grandfather that well, but I'm very familiar with – you know, on the fourth time watching this, you start to notice certain types of behavior that you associate with Britishness. Um, even the uh, kind of stiff upper lipness and in the face of these kind of really catastrophic conditions and, and conditions in which many people are breaking. The Killian Murphy character is going through that. You get those Branna moments and you get those um, those moments of actual like resolve in the face of like really difficult circumstances, which, you know, in, on much, much smaller scales, I recognized in my dad, you know, I recognized as part of the the psychology and not always to the, for the best, you know what I mean? But like, definitely, it was definitely resonant. Quentin, I feel like you challenged us a little bit with Dunkirk because maybe this movie is not perfect for all of the categories we have here. <laughs> um, upon reflection, I think that some of these categories are going to work really well mm-hmm. and some of them are not. But can you just talk, maybe the three of us can just talk a little bit about Nolan and time shifting before we mm-hmm. get too deep into them. Mm-hmm. Because this movie is, it forces you to crane your neck and it is much more rewarding on second and third watch, I think, mm-hmm. even beyond just the in-theater experience. Watching yeah. it at home, I thought was really helpful for me and seeing the way the pieces fit together works really well. In general, especially as somebody who knows a lot about time shifting in movies, mm-hmm. what do you make of the choice to kind of, I don't know, trifurcate the well, storytelling? You know, a lot of films that um, work through cross-cutting, which has always been Nolan's bag. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you know, almost to a degree where you could almost make fun of it, actually, because it's like he just builds up to these big set pieces and he cross cuts between three different sequences going on at the same time with the uh, 360 cameras moving and then uh, Hans Zimmer doing a 
Basil Pezzadoris like score. Oh, uh, yeah, and, and, and and so it's like it's it's that's the middle of the movie, and then there's 15 minutes of other junk, and then all of a sudden then he works up another big sequence where he's crock cutting three sixties and the Basil Pezzadoris shit going on. Uh, I mean, like you could almost uh, like you could you could parody that mm-hmm. almost to a degree. Um, but in Dunkirk. He figured out a way to do that for the entire movie and actually have it work. Um, I think it's one of those things where a lot of, oftentimes you see a film where the style is uh, is about the adrenaline of it. This uh, the style is about this immersive experience, and then by the third viewing or even the fourth viewing, uh, you get past the style. At, 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 at a certain point, uh, and, and you realize, you know, you're, you're seeing the, the magician's tricks a little bit. I actually think in the case of Dunkirk, it, it rewards, it rewards his efforts to see it more. I mean, there's a, there's a point this, the fourth time I watched it, watching it last night, knowing I'm coming in here now, it's by mid movie. It's like, he can't do it wrong. I mean, it's just every cut to every moment that he st- stays with the guy crashing in the water who can't get the the, uh, uh, the cockpit open. Uh, Collins. Yeah. Yeah, Collins to the... I actually like the fact that I don't know anybody's name in the movie <laughs> other than George. I wrote them I, all I, down. I, but, no, to... but you're not supposed to, though. You're not supposed <laughs> yeah. to know who that dude is. true. Who kind of is our lead character. Yeah, yeah. It's the Scottish, the Scottish guy. <laughs> there is a general anonymity to everybody because they are all of the British fleet, basically. Exactly. Supposed to be represented. I don't know who Kenneth Branagh yeah. is supposed to be playing. General, what of the... It's general exposition. Fucking Bane in a plane. <laughs> it's Bane in a plane. Yeah. Um, Chris, what about you? I, I feel like you're all very open... open hearted to to the Nolan style. I'm I've been I've been candidly a little more critical in the past. Yeah, I think that you know, one of the things that was interesting was when I think I remember having this conversation with you when it came out, which was whether or not this particularly worked for something that was by you know, is, is a real event. This is a real historical event that took place and whether or not manipulating it like that makes it feel that way, but especially on also the fourth rewatch and I watched it last night and sinfully watched it on a on a laptop with AirPods in. But I will say, same effect. And the same effect, more because of the cutting and the music than it was because of the cinematography and the scope. Um, I think that what happens is, and he's talked about this, is essentially the entire film is a third act. Mm -hmm. The entire film is is the tension you would feel in the last 15 minutes of a movie or the last 30 minutes of a movie sustained throughout because that's what it would have felt felt like to be there. Yeah, I mean, it has has the... truly has the effect of the entire movie is a huge action scene. The entire movie is the trailer to the movie. Yeah. Truly. And it, it, it feels quickly. like it feels like a trailer, except it actually a trailer that has weight and has depth and that you actually care. One of the things I love about it too is its length. It is one of the briefest of Nolan's movies and it mm-hmm. feels worthy of its runtime in a very specific way. When it's over, you're like, oh man, I actually mm-hmm. would like to go back even though it's the most harrowing possible yeah. sequence you could have. Well, I actually think, that, I mean, I actually think that's one of the uh, things that should be talk, talked about is the idea that um, my whole feeling is that every movie is a genre movie. Eric Romer movies are genre movies. They're Eric Romer movies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you can try to make a movie like that, like Claire's Knee, if you want. Um, and uh, the big battle movie is a genre that's very well established in in in, in cinema. You know, whether it's uh, you know, the phony baloniness of Battle of the Bulge or if it's uh, 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 The Longest Day or... Uh, 
uh, Waterloo or, or whatever. But it's a, it's a pretty elephantine genre. Midway, there's a new Midway coming That's out right. now. I remember the Jack Smith, uh, Jack Smite Midway incense around. <laughs> it was actually incense around. Uh, it was the second one after an uh, earthquake. Um, but the uh, Tora, 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 you know, they were all, you know, the, uh, they had big dusty cast and they, they were like three hours long. And the whole idea, whether they got it right or wrong, was to kind of tell you what what happened. That was the the story of the battle, the story that led to the battle, and and they uh, were dramatized Wikipedia movies. In they kind of yeah. yeah. info. They kind of were. It was uh, it, yeah, and, and and right enough. All yeah. right, you, some of them are good. Yeah. Now, actually, I think, frankly, the only one that actually goes to the level of art would be Alexander Nevsky, mm-hmm. and maybe if you really like the Russian guy who did. Uh, uh, um, War and Peace, maybe you might think of uh, his version of War and Peace or you think of his version of uh, Waterloo as an example. Or maybe you could throw in there Zulu or Zulu Dawn. But, yeah, at the end of the day, you still go back to Alexander Nesky when it comes to an artist doing it and kind of blowing you away. And uh, But with Dunkirk, it seems like he made it for reasons different than anybody's ever made a big battle movie before. It is far less important to him to tell you the story of exactly what happened in Dunkirk. And I think the reason he wanted to do it is less important than the story. He figured out how he figured out how to make a movie about it. And it's not a Wikipedia thing. It's not a history lesson, even though some history is learned. It was he figured out how to tell this as a movie. And uh, and he and he tested himself. He didn't he didn't let it get big. He didn't get let it get bloated. He kept it. He kept it a movie. And then he ends up telling you the story of Dunkirk. But that's a secondary thing yeah. to the sensory experience of watching Dunkirk. I think also one of the things that a movie like this does is rather than feel like you've learned everything, you want to learn more after you've mm-hmm. seen the movie, which is also really powerful. Yeah, it's I, the, once, the one that I was thinking about, because I was going to ask you, Quentin, about how you saw this in the sort of tradition and legacy of World War II movies, which is honestly, those are probably like my favorite kind of movies, <laughs> World War II movies. Uh, and this one, it, I, I kind of like relate it to A Bridge Too Far mm-hmm. because it, and it's also about a failure, essentially, but it's about <laughs> finding some sort of hope in the failure and averting total and complete catastrophe. But that is a Wikipedia. It's, it's like a All three and a half hour, hour, three and a half hours, painstaking yeah. detail of, okay, they took, they took the bridge, then they lost the bridge, then they took the bridge back. Well, well William Goldman even mentions about how the fact that the most— the most heroic moment that he could find in the entire story of uh, Bridge uh, of uh, Bridge Too Far, he couldn't put in the movie because it didn't make movie sense. <laughs> yes, yeah. which is not Robert Redford going across the channel. Mm-hmm. All right, it's it's because uh, he's going across the channel. It's the fog, then the fog lifts, and then they get shrapped. Uh, he could use that in the movie, but the bravest thing is the guys who have to come after him. Yeah, and there is no fog. And that was the bravest thing that happened during that entire battle. And he couldn't use it because, well, after Redford did it, who wants to see the other stuff? I, <laughs> I got other shit to do. And I feel like <laughs> this movie, I feel like Nolan's movie, resets the calculus on what you can do in a big battle war movie because it's it's a loss. It's a movie about a yeah. loss. Well, I mean, one of, I mean, one of the things about it, I mean, in its own way, it's very Britishness is what makes it so special, especially this kind of Britishness attached to this kind of adrenaline, which is not. Usual, yeah, right. They, and, Noel Coward didn't do this, yeah, right. and uh, but yeah, and he's and 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 a lot of the British uh, um, 
war films seem very, very dusty now. Uh, uh, Tunes of Glory, The Cruel Sea, uh, you know, Ice Cold Analysis is still uh, uh, has a lot of juice, but a lot of the uh, the more classic British movies uh, in which we serve seem really dusty compared to the American ones, which seem you know uh, have have just have a little bit more juice. Bare juice knuckled, to them. but but one of the things though is the national identity of the battle movie. Like for instance, uh, well, one of the battle movies. It's not even a battle per se, but. Uh, that I was always a big fan of was Rene Clement's uh, Is Paris Burning? Mm-hmm. And that definitely has a real French kind of quality to it. And it tells the entire story of the resistance uh, in, a, I think, a really, really cool way, especially with great black and white. But Dunkirk, you know, there's a long been said that, uh, and Dunkirk is the, is the example that they use, is the British romanticize their defeats even more. Yeah. The British romanticize their feats the way other countries uh, romanticize their triumphs. And that very British quality uh, of doing that in this tale in particular, I, particularly, I think is one of, uh, it's, 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 uh, one of its defining qualities. Yeah. In the last 600 years is the story of England becoming increasingly less powerful in the world. So it's only appropriate that they feel that way. But yeah. they're probably the definitive line not to jump on best quote because it's like like we were saying, it's hardly a best quote, but it's the guy saying, well done. You mm-hmm. know, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the the theme of the movie is, you know, if you will, we just survived. But it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's all you have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we do some categories? Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. I use my morning commute to catch up on the most recent episodes of our shows, like The Dave Chang Show, The Watch, and The Bill Simmons Podcast. It's my way of using the drive as an opportunity to stay on top of everything going on at The Ringer and get prepared for my day. No matter what your morning commute looks like, though, you can use it as an opportunity to earn rewards with three times the points on travel, including transit like taxis, ride shares, subway swipes, and even ferry rides for those of you who get to enjoy a nice breeze on your way to work. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash green from Amex. Terms apply. Most rewatchable scene. Now, this is kind of a pickle for us because of the the hard cutting that you're talking about, all the cross cutting. We can redefine this if we want to, but I'm going to try to stick to individuated moments. Yeah, but let's talk about what we were talking about before okay. we started. Yeah. Okay, you know, like for you know, so that was a question we had about like opening uh, about uh, about best scene, where it's like, and I agree with you. I think we should keep to the the movie, but it, it's a question that needs to be asked. Because of his stretching time out, and because of his uh, slicing and dicing these moments. Um, so it's like Tom Hardy lose, uh, uh, running out of gas that travels for about almost 20 minutes of the movie. So are you, are you going to edit that out of the movie and just make that its own section or do you, or do you do deal with the, th- the three different sections he has it in? We three are in charge of this podcast. <laughs> so if we want to set the rules anew, we can yeah. do that. I think it does make, I mean, it's tricky because Nolan captures great moments frequently in the movie. Mm-hmm. That's not exactly a scene. A lot of times when we talk about what we define as a scene, it's two characters in a room and they're having an extraordinary conversation and then something wild happens. Someone gets shot or someone falls off a building or someone just says something clever. This is a quieter movie, even though it's one of the loudest movies you could ever see. Yeah, I like, I like, I'm, I broke it down into the sections that they appeared in the movie. Okay, yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll kick a couple your way, and you guys tell me what's, what's missing. Mm-hmm. I think undoubtedly one of my absolute favorite opening scenes in the last ten years. Yeah. The, the leaflets falling from the sky as the Germans are, are pressing down on, on their backs is just. Incredible, but I think I, I and I think I, and I think it goes all the way to the beach where you hear yes. the, the, the opening the the, 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 first, the first credit the mole yeah. absolutely that is that extended period and <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one of the most extended periods of the movie I feel like before the cross cutting happens yeah. and before we realize mm-hmm. we're in a different kind of movie remember that feeling we had mm-hmm. when we first saw it and we were like 
oh, he's going somewhere else. And what yeah. does one day mean versus one week? It's confusing. Right. Yeah. But it's a, that's interesting. And I didn't actually, to be completely honest, know that the mole was the name for a jetty like that. Nor so I, I was yeah. like, is there a spy? Like I, was, yeah, I right, actually yeah. was like, oh, are we, is this like a mole hunt? You know, which it, it actually is in some ways. Mm-hmm. I also have Saving Killian Murphy. Can't risk it! Hang on. Discovering him sitting on a plane, and we realize that the movie is, it's unclear what time frame we're operating in, but pulling him off and then realizing that we have a character, one, who's a very recognizable actor, two, someone going through PTSD instantaneously that changes the biochemistry of all the people on that boat. Mm -hmm. Three, Commander Bolton sees 800 ships in the distance. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the, oh, the, 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 armada, the, armada, the armada showing up? Yes. Yeah, okay, wow, yes. That's incredible. And then <laughs> I'm going to just put four. I'm sure we have many more, but Farrier sets his plane ablaze at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Hardy watches it burn and then is taken off. So that's my four. You guys, what else? What else is on your list, Quentin? Well, I, it's, it's like for the whole first 45 minutes, okay? <laughs> if you're just going to, okay, this, uh, uh, okay. You're breaking the rules here. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not breaking the rules. I'm saying, okay, you got the first 45 minutes, so it's just, where do you, where does this sequence start and where does that sequence begin, yeah. all right? So, okay, so if it starts with the leaflets and what's, and uh, 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 the guy who shall not be named who is, the, who is apparently our lead. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, Fion Whitehead? Yeah. Is that a, his name? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, but like, look, I, is he ever called by his name in the movie? I don't think so. I don't he's think so. Tommy, but I don't know when he gets. Does anybody ever say Tommy? I, who the hell? He has He doesn't meet anybody who knows him. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, it's amazing to be a stranger in a strange land, but have be surrounded by thousands of people that look just like you. Yeah, I mean, but it's. I mean, like, uh, not to get too off, but I, but I mean, I, that's also one of my favorite things about like the movie. I mean, one of the things uh, we were talking about my review for. Um, Escape from Escape from Alcatraz, and, um, and there's a crafting of Clint Eastwood's character Frank Morris in that movie that's really really fascinating, and you could actually kind of feel like Eastwood and Siegel working together. Like, how long can we go before Frank says anything? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You actually mm-hmm. feel that. You actually feel, uh, and and it's, and it's not self conscious the way it is in uh, uh, with, with um, McQueen and Le Mans. All right, it actually seems like no, it's 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 uh, you know, it, it's kind of great pulp what they're trying to do. And it's like, how long can we go before he says anything? And then how long can we go before he says this next thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel that that is a, a quality that he brings to this kid that you end, who ends up becoming you in the, in the course of the film. And it's also very interesting about the fact that um, the kid's not necessarily heroic. Tom Hardy is heroic as Fuck all. Yes. All right. But the kid's not necessarily heroic. He is just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. He's trying to take a dump. Like yeah. that's like he's like he's like scared shitless. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, and that uh, that's one of the things that makes that opening scene brings it around. Yes. yes. Is is oh the whole scene has been him trying to take that dump. Yeah. Yes. Which also <laughs> a classic thing that I just didn't get the first two times I watched, and then the third time I was like, oh my god, he's trying to take a shit in the first two minutes of the movie, which is not something you expect in a Christopher Nolan war movie. But it, I mean, it is one of those. Things when you're watching a you war You missed film. that director's cut of Inception where, where the <laughs> yeah. was just like, I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I would appreciate more scenes like that. But, you know, but you, so, but like but like I said for the first 45 minutes, okay, so if it ends with uh, him getting to the beach and seeing the mole credit uh, uh, right after he meets the French guy for the first time, yeah. uh, well, then the next thing would be the air attack, uh, the air attack on the beach with 
one of the greatest, maybe maybe the greatest shot in, in war movie history. Yeah, boom, right. boom, 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 yeah. boom. You know, uh, uh, them dropping the bombs and just with him in the foreground. Help us understand how that how that happened. I don't, that's one of those, that is one of there's, those rare shots where when you see it, you're like, I don't get how he did that. There are multiple shots in this movie that I was going to say, like, please help me understand how anybody can make that shot happen. Like, like dogfight shots where the camera is still. And I'm just like, I don't get it. How did this happen? Well, it's like, I, I think, you know, uh, well, one of the things about, Nolan is, you know, if he can do it in real life, he's going to do it. If he can do it practically, where all he has to do is send it to the lab afterwards, that's how he's going to do it. That's what makes it a good shot, as opposed to an, uh, a paint set that you can paint anything you want. So um, things might have been sweetened later, but mm-hmm. I would imagine that, you know, he put the kid on the ground, he, he created his frame, and then created a series of uh, explosions. That got closer and closer and closer, and then he probably, and my guess is he probably had a dummy for the for the guy that explodes, but he animated it later after after the fact. That was right? my feeling. It <laughs> yeah. would be hard to do this without just a little bit of little sprinkle of of, yeah. of touching at the end. But it's, I mean, it's but it the, is incredibly but, effective. But the thing that, but you know, but the thing that's and 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 he has about he has about four or five in this movie, and you know, um. Of just of, of great shots of an artist of of a great director artist shot whether whether it's like when the ships are tilting and the weird angle that he gets that shows the ship tilting and the, the water rushing in I mean he just keeps doing that all the time he keeps making it an artistic an artistic experience even in something like Saving Private Ryan all the great shots that blow you away are all in that opening that battle. section yeah. which yeah. is just amazing the siege but I don't remember any of the shots afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they're just kind of telling the story from that point on. My favorite part about the like anything involving Tommy, and I, I noticed it this last time, is that it's and it's funny that you guys mentioned Alcatraz. Is it's a series of jailbreaks, and mm-hmm. yet every time he gets out, he winds up in another prison. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like he escapes something, and he's like, "I'm on the boat, and now I have my jam sandwich and my tea." But fuck, now we're this boat's going down. Yeah, and he knows it's going to go down because because the French kid is outside, and the French kid doesn't want to be stuck inside, even though he's also probably like nervous that he's going to get caught. I mean, but you've got the so you've got the opening scene, you've got the uh, the bombs on the beach, you've got the stretcher scene. Uh, and to some degree, I, I would even say, especially for a rewatch, uh, the first shot of George, Hello, George running up to the boat yeah. gets you because you know George is going to die. What are you doing? You do know where we're going. France. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. And a rewatch, when you see him with that pug you know, kind of pug beautiful face that like, he has yeah. come running up. It, 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 it grabs you very poignantly. Yeah, it's yeah. heartbreaking. And it's a sliding doors thing. And the other thing too, Chris, about what you're saying, one of the things that was so effective for me rewatching and thinking about the movie, which is, I would not, maybe not something I was doing the first couple of times I was watching it, but could there ever be a, mo- a movie that is more vast and more enclosed at the same time? You've got the vastness of the ocean and then the beach and a city on lockdown that those are wide open spaces. And then everything that is happening is Rylance on a boat. Yeah. Farrier inside the cockpit, being trapped inside of a ship that is sinking slowly, being trapped on the mole, which is very narrow and tense. Like, that is a spatial strategy yeah. that is so yeah. effective. And they reinforce that with, like, Branna saying we're so fucking close to home. Like, I can see Dover. You know, yeah. and, like, they they know that they're, they're, they're close. And the hopelessness of just— uh, uh, 
well, every big ship that comes is just going to get bombed and the guys are going to drown. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's so like there was only one solution and they found the one solution, <laughs> yes. yeah, which yeah, is right. 800 boats from England. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris, what about you? Most rewatchable scenes? Anything you want to add? The first dogfight. Uh, yeah. So when, when that, that's Farrier saying, I'm on him. Yep. You know, he's on me. I'm on him. He's on me. I'm on him. That's, you know, that's he, my best quote. And he comes in, and uh, the three of them, and that is really you get to like pretty primal, like I'm playing with toys feeling. When you see that, you're just like, I'm now, I'm just six again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was going to mention the Sea of Fire scene, which is not, there's a bunch of scenes in this one. I was Tough just, rewatch. Not call like, hey, honey, can we just hang out for a second because the <laughs> channel's about to light on fire? Uh, I just want to see that before dinner. But that whole sequence of the guys on the Moonstone being like, we have to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And then the all the stuff he does with POV of Hardy seeing like the bomber going towards them and knowing he's running out of gas and re-engaging. And just uh, that, that also happens in a very confusing temporal way. But that fucking scene is unreal how good that is, man. Yeah, and then oh, no, the first dog, and I clocked it as the, the, the first, uh, uh, First real air, uh, first real dogfight yeah. that happens, and it ends officially when the uh, when the flight commander uh, uh, plane gets nicked. Yes, and he doesn't go down mm-hmm. yet. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, but but he's in trouble. Yes, he knows he's going to have to land at some point. What other scenes, Quentin? You got more? Uh, the sinking of the ship. Yeah, yeah. Torpedo! Sinking of the ship is amazing. Has to be. It's- <laughs> As that tor- know, the, the shot of the torpedo too. Like, there's not a lot of like, because mm-hmm. usually they, they get caught unaware with whatever's happening. I think there's a lot of like the plane flies out of the sun, or the, that's when that's the one time I think because they're going from quote unquote Gibson's perspective, and there's the guy who sees torpedo and you see it coming like Jaws towards them. Oh, mm. yeah. So, what's your vote? Most rewatchable scene? Um, I would have to say. For the emotion of it all, it has to be the British soldiers seeing the Armada. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. I would agree with him. I, I would probably throw a vote on to the stretcher run. And, and one of the things about the stretcher run, that's where the score is truly introduced. That's when the score, that's when Hans Zimmer's score kicks in and you realize that this is how they're, this is how they're going to tell the Check your pulse when that scene ends. Because it's going to be racing. Because like when that scene, that kicks in, you're exactly right. It's like that hole and there's several tracking shots and that they run across the one board of the, of the, of the mole. Remember like they have to, they're like, make a run at it. And then, like, they get there and they're like, get the fuck off the boat. You know, it's... And also, it's... And, and also what's really great about it, too, is, like, they're doing it for mercenary reasons. Yes. <laughs> yes. Totally. They're yeah. trying to get on that damn boat. Yeah. F the guy in the stretcher. He might even be dead for a week. Yeah. It's heartbreaking <laughs> when they get booted off. And you know they're going to get booted off, but they're yeah. very straightforwardly yeah. booted off. Um, I'm going with the leaflet scene just because I've never seen something so peaceful and yet so terrifying at the same time. Look, if I was, was going to... I, if I'm going for, I guess my the best my favorite scene in the movie, I guess it would be the opening scene. All right, but I think you're. Um, you want to rewatch the Armada? No, you got but a well, to watch no, yeah, but yeah, I, I you know, it, it's the it, it's the emotional payoff of everything you've been watching. So I, you know, uh, if that scene 
doesn't work, then the whole movie doesn't work. It's one of those, you know, it's uh, true. I mean, I can imagine like him walking into a theater just just to watch that scene right. and to see how the audience reacts to it. And 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 truthfully, it was one of those moments watching that in London when the Armada happens and you see the different little boats and then the music for the first time actually you know becomes like movie music. What do you see? As opposed to yeah. this driving yeah. theme, because more like a regular movie music. You know, I looked around the theater and like all the Brits were crying. Yeah. Every single one. Huh. And they all were just wiping tears out of their eyes. It's amazing. And that's why you cast Brana too, I feel yeah. like, is for that yeah. payoff yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but there's also something else that's kind of really wonderful. The, the, the neat thing in the, uh, about the theme that gets mentioned. And, and I think this would probably apply to um, every country making a war movie. But there's something that seems so perfectly British about it is old men coming to take their boys home. Mm -hmm. So it's boys who are fighting this war. It's boys. And in this case, you have old men getting their their fishing boats and their their luxury their luxury little yachts and their uh, uh and you know their little dinky things. And you know and it's you know we're going to go get our boys back. We're going to get our lads. Yeah. And there's something just and 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 you know that could be in Italy, that could be in America, but there's something so perfect about it being British. Mm-hmm. And even the, even that final moment at the end when the blind man is handing out the blankets and the yeah, food, yeah. and it's the same yeah. sort of pride. There's a yeah. there's a national pride that yeah, is sincere. There was al- it was also self preservation because they knew this was happening. What was it? Nine, nine, how many miles away was it basically from England to France? I mean, it's they uh, knew this is twenty nine miles swim. So it's like down said. the street. Yeah. They can't they can't afford if the army gets vanquished, they are next. That's what that's what Rylance yeah. is saying on the boat. Mm-hmm. What's aged the best now? These categories are going to be a little bit tricky because uh, about two years and four months have passed. But mm-hmm. I think that there are a couple of things that we can point out. Um, I, as I've said, I've been a little bit tough on Chris Nolan in the past. Uh, and I, I think structure is an interesting conversation with all of his movies. But the structure of this movie, and Quentin, you kind of already summed it up in describing it at the top. But the structure of this movie is so brilliant and and it still kind of eludes me, its construction. I can't quite see how it came together and it works so well on the rewatch that I would encourage people, if they haven't seen this in two years, just watch it tonight. Yeah. Watch it. You will be rewarded for it, literally. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like – I don't think he makes it – I don't think he puts a foot wrong in the whole first half of the movie. But by the time you get to the middle of the movie, then it's a symphony. Yeah. I mean, it's just nothing Nothing doesn't work. Everything works. You know, if, if when he cuts back to somebody for 30 seconds, those are the right 30 seconds. I mean, it, it, uh, um, the film absolutely deserved to win uh, the Oscar for best editing, but I think it's a crime it didn't win for best score. I mean, it's 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 probably the score of a move of one movie particular that you could define the decade by. I the next thing on my list is Hans Zimmer's score. Yes. Uh, <laughs> some data points on that: the ticking sounds that serve as a crucial theme in the score were, were recorded by Hans Zimmer from one of Christopher Nolan's own pocket watches. <laughs> he then put the sounds into synthesizers and altered them in different ways for the soundtrack. The clock in the soundtrack doesn't stop ticking during the whole movie until Alex and Tommy are sitting safely on the train, which is a great touch. Yes, yes. Um, Hans Zimmer obviously is a huge part of Nolan's legacy as a filmmaker. They have an amazing collaboration. It's very well known at this point. I think the Dark Knight theme similarly and the Mm -hmm. Inception theme similarly are burned into the brains of movie obsessives. This one, though, is is something where, 
And maybe you can help us understand this a little bit. Well, to but, me, I, I, th- this has that Leone Morricone. Yeah. Oh, you can't imagine one yes, without yes. the it's other. In fact, sh- they don't exist without the it's other. It's just exactly a shot it. of a guy in a desert if it's not Morricone. Yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah. You know, and all building to the, the bull ring. You, you know, we're like now the whole movie lays out. All right, you know, now it's uh, he, he has a different structure than that. And it's more pronounced all the way through. But just the way that they just kind of work, it's just it, uh, they're part of each other in a way that's just different than a theme. There's something also about it where it's it, it it's I don't often think of it for most of the film as music. I think of it as sound, you know, yeah, yeah. and so it becomes this thing that is as it's as responsible for your emotional reaction to what you're seeing as as the cutting and the cinematography yeah. and the performances. And uh, in a movie that's absent of a lot of, you know, pretty much dialogue this yeah. is sort of filling in a a, a, a a part of the palette that he's not using so here's one thing I have for what's aged the best and I'm wondering if you both have an answer for this since you both are such scholars <laughs> uh, I think of this as the first Hitchcock movie masquerading as a war movie and Nolan was pretty straightforward about that there are not a lot of movies that are it's almost it's not a puzzle movie but it's a sort of like it's almost like a who done it or who's gonna how do we figure out what's happening not just in the structure of the movie but will they survive will these boats arrive mm-hmm. what exactly is the plan for every character in the movie has that ever been done because it seemed actually oddly novel to me as i thought thought about it through that lens Matt, the way you're well the way you're describing it i had i hadn't thought about it that way before but i'll i'll, I'll buy what you're i'll buy what you're describing i mean oddly enough when it comes to his Structure of cutting around, I actually think the closest thing to um, something that predates it, and you're going to laugh a little bit, but I can actually see him thinking this. I think it it bears a very close um, relationship to it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> all right. Once once the characters in a mad, 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 mad world, when once they just all break off and they're every man for himself, mm-hmm. and it's now ju- it's just the mad chase going on. That's when the movie really lets lets loose, and I can definitely see Chris Nolan being a big fan of that movie. Um, can you? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. I, would, I would love to watch him watch it. That oh, seems no, like could, a strange image. No, I can see the the, the bigness of it all. Yeah, that's, the, true. that's uh, true. The the size of the frame alone. That's true. Uh, but also, he he likes big elephantine kind of things, and and you know, he's the right kind of age. He would have grown up with it. Mm-hmm. Where the, that would have you know that was a you know that was before my time. But they kept re releasing it every three years in the seventies. So I I saw it at the theaters about four or five different times when I was you know before twelve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before I was 12. But the thing about the thing about it though is um the cross-cutting between the different characters in it's a mad, mad, mad world is uh is done in a similar way that the cross-cutting is done here, and also in it's a mad mad world, it's the theme that keeps holding it together. That earnest gold theme keeps the the, the cross-cutting together, keeps it in your mind. And to the even to the degree that there even uh, there's sequences that are similar. All right. Uh, Thomas Har- uh, Tom Hardy stuck up <laughs> stuck up on the plane is very reminiscent of, of Buddy ha- uh, 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 Buddy Hackett and uh, Mickey <laughs> Rooney stuck in a plane that they can't land. Yeah. Same thing with Tom same thing with Tom Hardy. When uh uh the kid who shall not be named uh, <laughs> When he fucks up and finds himself stuck in the boat, that's similar to Sid Caesar and, and, and Edie Adams getting stuck in the basement. 
and they can't get out. I must say, I was not <laughs> expecting this comparison. I feel But it's legitimate. <laughs> yeah. um, I watched that movie all the time growing up, so I'm familiar with it. And it is kind of similar in that and it's... And it's also kind of a drag when they get stuck in the boat. Like, yeah. wait, it's kind of a drag yeah. when Sid Caesar and Edie Adams get stuck in that basement. But they're both also convergence <laughs> movies, where yes, at the uh-huh. end, everything kind of comes together, and you understand it a lot more clearly. And Absolutely. That a, that's, a, that's a subgenre. Yeah, and... Tom Hardy uh, 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 sailing uh, sailing through that sky without any gas. He's kind of the big W. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, other things that have aged well. Chris, you already mentioned the sound design. I think that's separate from Zimmer, but also in close relationship. Sure. It's just a movie that, that 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 particular sound of, I guess it's like, is it the Stuka fighter that's flying mm-hmm. over their heads? It's mm-hmm. just yeah. so, uh, so visceral and evocative. Um, I just wrote down the words Mark Rylance. I think Mark Rylance is kind of an interesting actor to talk about. Mm-hmm. If I don't know a lot about the British theater. Chris, for whatever reason, 10 years ago was all in on Mark Rylance. I can't remember. He was like, this is the guy. And I don't know what he was talking about. British TV show, but he's obviously in Wolf Hall, which I think is the adaptation of the Hillary Mantel uh, novel. And I, I think that's where Nolan sort of seized on him. He's just great in everything he's in, no well, matter what it is. But in England, he specialized in playing the female roles mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in Shakespeare production. Yeah. Yeah, and he's obviously a, a very um, he's a very versatile actor, but he has a kind of stillness in this movie that mm-hmm. really serves him because of what you're talking about, that sort yeah. of that old man who is going right, to go yeah. out onto the sea and save his sons. What else has aged the best? Well, frankly, I would say it's, um, I think, the concept of Chris Nolan's virtuosity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this, to me, I can understand if you guys think that Dark Knight is his apex mountain. To me, this is his apex mountain because this is where he really dealed himself in uh, aside from Gotham City Mm -hmm. and aside from science fiction and aside from uh, the San Diego Comic-Con crowd, all right, to being a great filmmaker and uh, dealing with a big subject and brought Warner Brothers along with him Mm -hmm. in in the exact way Stanley Kubrick would have done. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Bringing Warner Brothers along with them, you know, it's like you know, and 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 they backed him a hundred percent. And yeah, if you look at Interstellar, this film, and then Tenet, which is his movie coming out next year, you've got three wholly original stories mm-hmm. from big studios with big budgets that people are excited about and were eager to see. They were eager to see Interstellar. They were very mm-hmm. eager to see Dunkirk, which is kind of impressive the amount yeah. of people he got to see this. And then Tenet, we'll see what we get. Chris, what else has aged the best? I mean, I agree with him. It's it, it's hard to imagine this movie being imitated or topped. It it does feel like it could only have been made by him and it could only have been told in the way that he told it. If you try to rearrange the movie in your head and say, okay, what would happen if you would cut it more in a more linear fashion? It actually doesn't hold together as a gripping story the way it does, you know, the way he tells it. So you wind up really having something that's it's a special kind of storytelling. It's only could have been done by him. As far as other stuff that I feel like aged is the best, uh, I thought that we've made we've had a lot of fun at the expense of no name uh, characters here. <laughs> but really, really, really good job, Rando Brit, with the faces. Yeah, the faces feel like guys in photographs of British soldiers mm. in 1940. You know, and and you just you buy it. Did you they know? all look like Harry Styles? No, <laughs> I don't. But Harry Styles <laughs> is covered in oil. You know what That's I mean? True. Like, and, and and yelling at guys to bring him a paper. You know. <laughs> Before we started this podcast, we were talking with our producer about why Harry Styles is in the movie, and we're going to talk about him a little bit more. But which one is he in the movie? He's the one who's uh, a prick towards the end. He's just like, oh, we we're gonna be spit on on the street. Oh, the, oh, he's, oh he's the yeah. one who's like who's 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 calling out the yeah. French. He's guy. most yeah, aggressive yeah, to yeah, the yeah, French yeah, guy, yeah. exactly. Um, and he's he's 
he's good. He just so happens to be one of the five biggest pop stars in the right. world. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, what's age the worst? I don't, you know, this is a tough one. Um, we just spent 40 minutes yeah. praising this movie. I, I, here's what I wrote down. The time-shifting gimmick in general, is this just something that is going to be in every Christopher Nolan movie now? And is that, will we look back upon that as a stylistic hallmark or a crutch? That is what I think people would use to criticize it. The first few times I saw the movie, I didn't even realize they were going back in time. I didn't realize that I was seeing uh, uh, the medical ship bomb three different times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that. Uh, this time I actually, oh, I actually, in the, when they're in the airplanes together, you actually repeat dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I didn't catch it. I don't yes. think I got that the first three times I saw the movie. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> um, and so I had a little bit of, well, wait a minute. They sank the ship and it's at night and now we cut back to Mark Rylance and it's during the day. What's up with that? Um, but then I realized that they were going back in time as, uh, and if it took me the fourth time to actually realize that, that seems pretty seamless filmmaking because it's never a question. It was never a question I had. I wasn't paying attention to the light day versus night stuff mm-hmm. the first three times I saw the film. This time I'm really thinking about it and I go, wait a minute. I thought this was all, I thought this was a little bit more linear or cross cutting, but I thought it's more linear. Yeah. What's going on with here? But then he's, he answered my questions, he solved it for me. As the movie went on. So let me ask you both this. I I just saw a new movie coming out. I won't say what the movie is that similarly plays with storytelling shape and the flashback approach to telling a different story that is kind of familiar to us. Do you guys like to be confused or disoriented when you're walking into a movie and saying like, I don't really get like, I don't really I can't put my finger on it, but I can't figure out what this is because you guys watch so many movies that I think you tend to send you. I have the shape. I have a I have a I have. A specific answer for that. All right. Um, the answer is I love it when I'm in good hands. And if I'm confused and I'm not in good hands, then you've broken the spell. Mm-hmm. And I feel your movie is just. Uh, uh, we'll define that. What is what is good hands? Does that mean when you know who the filmmaker is going in, or is it when you get to the end of the movie? No, I, I it, it is. Um, it, it could be a first time filmmaker, but I I feel intention. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that there was an author involved here and I never asked those questions in a book. I mean, I might ask those questions in a book, but, but, uh, but the author has the right in a book to tell me the story in any form, in any fashion that they want to. And then it's their job to take care of it eventually. And, um, when I feel I'm in the hands of an author who is doing this on purpose and I don't need to know this and I don't need to know that. And, you know, and I've, uh, you know, and I'm constantly withholding information from my audiences. If I don't want you to know it, I don't want you to fucking know it. And, uh, and I'm always, uh, asking you to answer the question yourself. And, uh, you know, you know, example is if you think Cliff Booth killed his wife, well, you're watching one movie. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you think it's just a tragic accident that happened and he's had to live with this black stain on him, well, now you're watching a whole other movie and that's, up to that's up to you guys to decide you know is chris mannix the sheriff of red rock or is he not depending on what the answer to that question is those are two different movies you just watched what about i don't think we don't have have anything like that in this no 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 but there is um well so here's the thing there there are things that happen in that we can project into the future in the movie too that we don't know and maybe in the unanswerable questions we'll we'll get into some of that like did the english win the war 
<laughs> Did they though? I, um, I would say that you, you mentioned authors, and the first thing that jumped into my mind was Ian McEwan, who wrote this novel called Atonement, in which Dunkirk figures very heavily, and Joe Wright made a film of the movie that also has a pretty amazing sequence set during Dunkirk. Uh, without giving too much away for anybody who happens to want to read Atonement, there is a there's a twist in Atonement that takes place very late in the book that I remember um, just my wife was reading the book and I remember her actually throwing the book across the, the room because she was so <laughs> shocked and upset by it. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of kind of keeping people in the dark is to set them up for some sort of shock or emotional manipulation. I don't ever think that Nolan does that, which is not to say that one is better than the other, but I don't think Nolan does the emotional manipulation part because if you did, you would really play up George, right? You can go rewatch it mm-hmm. and you know that he's going to die and yeah. it's very sad and it's sad to hear his dialogue knowing what's going to happen to him. But he never reverses the clock on George so that we feel even worse while we're yeah. watching the movie that he suffers this really tragic accident while he could have died any other number of ways. He gets mm-hmm. into a shoving match with a with another British soldier. So I think that the, that's the thing. I personally love being confused. But usually because I don't know what people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I tend to really respond to, you know, very jargon-filled scripts that are about a profession that I only sort of tangentially understand. That's one of the reasons why I love crime movies and cop movies and stockbroker movies and all sorts of things like that because I love kind of trying to piece together language. But what you're doing in... in Big stockbroker movie. Guy. I love I love all <laughs> no, three stockbroker no, movies. But I know yeah. what you, no, but I know what you mean because, like, for instance, one of the things that I really like about... Uh, I, I love this in films. Uh... Like something like one of the reasons I like uh, Bull Durham, yeah, is because they take you so deep inside yes. of, of minor league baseball, and then all the jargon uh, is like they're going to the show, and you you learn what that means. And Incredible by the time, stuff. Yeah, yeah, and by the time yeah. by the time the movie's over, you actually feel like you're a little bit of an expert uh, yep. uh, on uh, minor league baseball in a way that you weren't before you walked in the theater, right? Because you just you, you know because again. You're in good hands. You know Ron Shelton knows exactly what he's talking mm-hmm. about when it comes to uh, yeah. when it comes to this middle you. And so the the, di- the 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 language of Inception, at least in terms of its dialogue, is not particularly confusing. I mean, even the dogfighting scenes, you have a pretty good idea. He's like this. He's going to come out of the sun. This guy's like, I'm blind to this guy. Please come help me. But the understanding time is what you're confused about. And it's, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting, different sensation, even though I, it's one I, I really crave. Well, we also learned that there is a second definition for mole, which yes. was helpful. <laughs> yes. Or third, I guess, if you're being specific. Uh, but then also it's like, you know, frankly, it doesn't matter if it's three days or a week or anything mm-hmm. like that. You're just trying to get the boys off the island. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. And at the end of the day, that's all that you emotionally have to Focus on. And I feel like a lot of people who saw this movie probably just walked away with that takeaway. Yeah. They didn't say, they didn't say, it's time for me to record a rewatchables and to talk about (laughs) how all of these stories fit together. They thought they got off the island and they were saved. But like, and just, you know, having just seen Ad Astra, Ad Astra, how do you say it? Ad Astra. Ad Astra. Ad Astra. Okay. You know, in the whole second half of the movie, I don't know why anything is happening. I don't know. (laughs) You know, I don't. uh, 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 You don't know the science of, of, Pluto? <laughs> yeah, well, they just, you know, uh, we're just supposed to agree with them mm-hmm. about yeah. everything that they say, but I don't know why this is working and why that's working and, and why a mutiny on the ship that happened 15 years ago is now sent, you know, uh, is, is, is now sending surges that have killed 40,000 people. Uh, 
we just go with it because they tell you that's that's what's happening. And, you know, now what you respond to in that movie is, you know, they took the entire structure from Apocalypse Now. So we, and, we have, Chris and I have discussed that. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, exactly. Yes. I mean, down to, you know, Tom Lee Jones' little interviews, yep. uh, to even the photos of him yep. are very similar to the photos of, of the Kurt, dossier of Brando. You know, the, yep. the, the uh, 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 not, not, anywhere near as good all right the uh, voiceover all right but the voiceover yeah. is like is like willard's voiceover throughout the whole thing uh, um i would even say even the magnificent chasing yeah all right is similar to the kind of things that you happen in uh, apocalypse now but before the even to the point of brad pitt even saying hey we can hey we're not supposed to stop my mission takes precedence yes, over this yes yes <laughs> extraordinary survival while under attack from pirates like there is a, yeah. there, there are a lot of but similarities the, but the point being though is you know uh, i saw it with my wife and I enjoyed watching the movie. It was a very pretty movie, and I had a really good time at the movie theater, and I loved Brad in it. Uh, and but she liked it more than I did. And then when she asked me about it, I go, well, I don't understand why I didn't understand why this is happening. I didn't understand why that is happening. I guess I'm just I'm supposed to just go along with this. Well, he doesn't tell us anything about really what's truly going on in Dunkirk, and I always have a sense of what's happening. It's very true. It's an amazing accomplishment in that specific respect. And I say, in particularly up, with, in particularly up with those guys from the airplane. That's where mm-hmm. it really. That's where it yes. really. Yes. Yeah, we don't. And and that's the thing is, we the one thing we do learn actually. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Is that there is this anxiety and this frustration from the men on the beach about the, the lack of bombers that yeah. the RAF are not there and they're not helping them when in fact they are trying. Mm-hmm. And this is it's a tricky business flying an airplane around <laughs> yeah. and trying to kill people. Yeah. And. They're, they're sort of frustrated because they just want to get free and get safe. And there's a withholding of the fact that not everyone knows that. Well, I actually think that there's, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, one of the actual storytelling things that's actually done in the movie, that's not just about survival or defense or rescue. Because that's, those are the three things we're dealing with, survival, defense, mm-hmm. and rescue. Uh, with who we're, who we're cutting around with. The one type of true, genuine storytelling is when uh, the officers are talking towards the beginning and they're going to have to shit can the French. Yeah. And it's against everything that the British hold themselves up to be. But we need our army back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, uh, this, this is not the time to worry about niceties like that. We need our boys back. Nothing is more important than that. And they sell you their moral quandary. For sure. Yeah. And and <laughs> France is forced to sacrifice and falls mm-hmm. because of this. Mm-hmm. And England escapes and eludes capture and, or destruction. And because mm-hmm. of that, the war continues. I yeah. mean, it, it is the yeah. highest stakes you could possibly have And there's have lots in a movie. of little negotiations that happen in the movie like that. Mm-hmm. They even talk about like one stretcher takes up the room of seven standing That's men. That's right. You yeah, know, yeah. And they're kind of, they're obviously debating like, what do we do with our wounded here? Because we're going to lose the army if we right. make this into a medical rescue mission. Yeah, exactly. And they're not obviously not, not, not bombing medical boats. So they're in trouble. <laughs> they're like, oh, I see that flag. You guys are good. Mm-hmm. Casting what ifs. This is the first time this has ever happened, but I did not see one. Did you guys see any casting what ifs here? No, I mean, the, I saw, so is, I, I don't want to step on, on internet research, but is Michael Caine's voice in this movie? It is in this movie. Okay. Michael oh, is. Caine is, is very briefly, uh, I think he's in the airplane. I have it listed here. There's just an, here's the thing. The new movies have so much goddamn research. And here's why. I'm curious to ask you about this too. There's so much reporting 
around movies now. And there's so much information trading and there's so many outlets. It's not like if we did Butch Cassidy, you know, mm-hmm. there's like five magazines in the <laughs> yeah, three networks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's only so much that can be printed or you could about just any read one the movie. William Goldman thing about the, from the guy who yeah, wrote yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's straight from the horse's mouth. This movie, the half ass internet research, it's fucking, it's 10 pages long. I mean, I, it would be boring for me mm-hmm. to sit here and read you guys some of this stuff. I mean, there's tons of stuff about the authentic nature of mm-hmm. the costumes and the spitfires and, you know, these, you know, replicas that were flown, these antique spitfires that were flown in from France. Um, I'll read a couple of things. And then if you want to interject, feel free. So the first breakthrough of the idea to make a movie about Dunkirk had come to Dolan about 20 years earlier during the mid-1990s while on a boat trip with Emma Thomas, his soon-to-be wife and producing partner. They were sailing across the channel towards Dunkirk, the same route thousands of British fishing and pleasure ships took in May 1940 as part of a civilian operation to evacuate the bulk of the British Army trapped on the French coast when they ran into rough weather. The simple crossing ended up taking 19 harrowing hours just to get across it in whatever this year was, 1999, probably something like that. So that just gives you a little bit of insight into what Rylance's character is even dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is not an easy journey mm. that these guys were taking to save people. The filmmakers told studio executives that they wanted to make the film without a lot of stars. Kenneth Branagh has a small role. Mark Rylance has a small role. Hardy, Killian Murphy. But many of the film's media's parts were cast with rookie actors intentionally. Um, another big chunk went to reconstructing the mole, the half-mile-long pier where British soldiers lined up for evacuation. Only a small piece of it remained at Dunkirk, but based on original blueprints, the production was able to rebuild it at about 900 feet at a cost of $900,000. Here are the movies that Nolan cited that inspired him to make this movie. This is a pretty good list. Mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> a number one. He cited a bunch of silent movies, which I think makes sense yeah. given the sparsity of mm-hmm. the script. Uh, Greed from 1924, Intolerance, Love Struggle Throughout the Ages from 1916, Sunrise 1927. Those are three of the most celebrated and classic silent films of all time. And then he said, I spent a lot of time reviewing the silent films for crowd scenes, the way extras move, evolve, how the space is staged, and how the cameras capture it, the views used. Nolan also studied A Man Escaped, Pickpocket, Saving Private Ryan, which we mentioned, and The Wages of Fear to dissect the process of creating suspense through details. Mm-hmm. I think it was uh, Alien was also mentioned as one that he watched. Mm. Yeah. Which, I could see that. Yeah, because yeah. the second half spaces, of Alien is tension. silent, or not silent, but no dialogue. Yeah. Do you think Dunkirk would be better if it culminated in a chestburster? If it was part of the Alien Expanded <laughs> Universe? Yeah. If Scarrett just came back? A um, <laughs> lot of technical challenges here. Do you think about that stuff when you're watching a movie like this? Like, this, must, this seems hard? Uh... Yeah, but not 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 in a way that it takes me out. In a way that it actually just uh, um, it gratifies me. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, so like uh, you know, it's that stretch of beach. It's all those guys on that stretch of beach. You know that that's his. Uh, you know that's his Gettysburg. Yeah, and the film is 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 that stretch of beast, and 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 it's it's amazing. It's it's fantastic, and I'm 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 um, and I'm kind of awed every time I'm there. So Nolan focused on the realism of every aspect. For many of the cockpit shots, he had a two-seat plane rigged so that the front canopy and cockpit looked like a real Spitfire, but with non-functioning flying controls, and with the actual pilot flying the plane from the rear cockpit so that the actor could play the pilot as the plane actually flew. He also mounted front and rear-facing cameras on a reconditioned Spitfire. In addition, he had cameramen floating in the water with the actors. I don't understand. Similarly, the the oil catching on fire in the yeah. water is one of those like I don't know how how did they do this <laughs> yeah. this seems terribly unsafe for all people involved um there's so much here there's a couple of shots of the of the dog fighting there's one I think I mentioned it was it's just static I don't understand how the the camera's not moving is that like an IMAX thing 
like that's so big that you can actually make it so that it doesn't jitter, but it is, it's just mind blowing. You just see the, the entire horizon in static. Mm-hmm. Dawson, who is Mark Rylance's character, is closely based on Charles Lightoller, second officer of RMS Titanic, who took his yacht Sundowner to Dunkirk at the age of 66. Like Lightoller, Dawson refuses to let the Navy crew his boat. If anyone takes her, it will be me and takes one of his sons with him. Like Lightoller, Dawson had lost a son in the Royal Air Force who taught him how to evade air attack. And like Lightoller, he packs the boat so full, four stood in the bathtub, that the disembarkation officer couldn't believe over 55 men were aboard it. <sighs> So that's just a smattering of half-assed internet research. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place I can listen to The Ringer's amazing new podcast, Sonic Boom, How Seattle Lost Its Team, hosted by our very own Jordan Ritterkahn. If you're a fan of sports, great investigative journalism, or both, this is definitely a podcast you can't miss. And since Jordan and I work together on this show, I'm, I'm very excited to tell you that I, I really hope you'll listen to it. I think it really turned out some fascinating information about the team and the history of the NBA and how sports teams are, are moved in this country. Along with Sonic Boom, Luminary offers more than 40 podcasts you can't find anywhere else, including two more from The Ringer, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999, and the Rewatchables spinoff, the Rewatchables 1999. The Luminary app is free to download and gives you access to way more than just their own content. You can use it to listen to thousands of other shows, including this one. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash rewatch. After that, it's $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash rewatch for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash rewatch. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. The Dion Waiters Award for Best Heat Check Performance. Do we need to explain? You, you, you yeah, got yeah, yeah. Dion Waiters, you got it. Mm-hmm. You big Dion Waiters guy, Quentin? <laughs> no, okay. I, I don't. I, I know what the category is. I have no idea who Dion Waiters is. Okay, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. Um, <laughs> I figured he's a basketball player. Yeah, he truly is. Okay, yeah. uh, I, I wrote down Harry Styles. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that this is that kind of movie. Now you could make the case that mm-hmm. this is a sort of inverted Dion Waiters, that Hardy. So does the most with the least amount of time? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. You know, it's a tricky category. He's he's got. I feel like he carries the he carries film. the air with with Jack Loudon. So I think it's right. hard to say that Hardy is. I mean, I guess the I guess that would be true because of the mask. We should probably talk about the fact that Tom Hardy is essentially a movie star, even though you never see the bottom half of his face until the second last shot of the movie. Yeah, uh, uh, but I mean, but but Dion Waiters can't be one of the leads, right? And to me, to me, it's Mark Ryan. Listen, the boat. It's. Uh, Tom Hardy in the air, and it's he who should not shall be named. Right. Trying to <laughs> getting it in the frying pan and, and into the fire yep, throughout literally. the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, is there the, the, Barry Gagan? The, is there anybody? Uh, and uh, and I guess I mean Kenneth Branagh. Ken, Kenneth Branagh, but Killian Murphy, Kenneth Branagh. I mean, I well, I wouldn't consider Killian. I would I would I would say that Mark Rylands is 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 a lead over Cillian Murphy. Okay, so. I think there's a case for Murphy then. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a great case. I think PTSD performance is a little bit of a tricky cat subcategory. You know, it's like, you got to be careful you're not doing too much. Well, it's like, that's my least favorite section. Is the Killian of, stuff? Of, yeah, yeah. Of, of the movie. Not that it's bad, not that it shouldn't be there, not that it disrupts anything, but that's that's the section I'm the least into. And that's, uh, but again, the movie moves so quick that like, you know, anytime, you know, 
you guys, I hadn't heard, I haven't listened to it yet, but you guys did Magnolia. Yeah. All right. There's no way you're going to like every story in Magnolia. Right. No. <laughs> they didn't want, like, you're going to like every bit in, in Slackers. All right. At some point, you're going to not respond to something, but it's okay because it's a big. Do you mean the Ryland section in general or when Murphy gets on the boat? No, in particularly Murphy's section. Yeah. In yeah. particularly yeah. the Murphy. Him getting locked in the cupboard. Yeah. yeah. In particularly the Murphy section. However, but because even though I'm not necessarily responding to that that much, whenever you're there, you're only there for a short amount of time. And so it actually does feel like a, it works into the fabric. And it's so great when you meet him and he's not cracking up a little bit yeah. and he's like you know this is what we have to do just be calm we have to go back to the beach we'll go wait for another boat to come and he's he's commanding that rowboat yes that's a great review i think george yeah. you think george george, george. i'm gonna go george too barry, barry. Keown. yeah okay yeah. barry Keown is a great actor um the joey pants award <laughs> for best that guy performance now i don't think we've ever seen this before but it has to be retroactive right uh, yeah. because we know Kenneth Branagh. We know Mark Rylance. Mm-hmm. We know Tom Hardy, even in a mask. We yeah, know yeah. we know who all these people are. So all of the supporting characters of the movie, for the most part, are well-known, and they're yeah. not that guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But every fucking guy who's sub-25 is a that guy yeah. now. Mm-hmm. But they weren't then. Yeah, yeah. They were anonymous. Right. So that includes Fionn Whitehead, whose name we refuse to say on this show for some reason. <laughs> Nurin Barnard. Fionn Whitehead's probably like, oh, God damn it, I can't believe they're going to do Dunkirk. I can't wait to hear them talk about my performance. It's just the three of us be like, this fucking kid. Poor guy. What, who are you playing? I really feel bad for this guy. And Nurin Barnard, who I saw for the first time in The Goldfinch. That was the first time I'd seen him since this movie. He's a Frenchman. Jack Loudon, who has gone on a, a career of some yeah, he's around. Uh, Barry Keown, who we mentioned. Tom Glenn Carney. Uh, and Harry Styles. I mean, Other than Harry Styles, I don't know any of these guys. <laughs> you just I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Harry Styles, let's give it to him at this point, right? Or do you think that that overqualifies him? Well, let's just examine this. We're quote. really is getting there, into parliamentary. Yeah, okay, is it? Yeah, yeah. So there's no like Dan Aykroyd like shoved in the. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. There's, well, I mean, we Chris mentioned uh, 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 Kane. Kane. So, Kane. Kane you know, the, yeah. This is the seventh movie between Nolan and Kane. Uh-huh. Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, and Interstellar. Kane appeared in an uncredited voice cameo as the Royal Air Force flight leader. Mm-hmm. Kane previously por- portrayed an RAF pilot in Battle of Britain. Yes, it did. And he, so he's the guy in this movie who's like, make sure you have enough fuel to get home. Yes. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> that was not a very good Kane. I, I, well, I, I'm not going to do Michael Kane. You know, <laughs> it's done. It's you know, Steve Coogan does Michael Kane. Okay. I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> As far as Styles goes, when asked why he cast Styles, Nolan said, I auditioned literally thousands of young men with different combinations of young men, and he had it. He compared the casting to Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight because people also underestimated him. It's Okay. It <laughs> uh, sounds like something you would say. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's like, I wasn't aware of his singing career or something like that. Uh, he did say that. Yeah. I, you know, that seems debatable. Uh, we One thing that happened on the Magnolia podcast that you have mm-hmm. not heard is we may have renamed the Saul Rubinek Award. Oh, really? Which yeah. might break your heart a little bit. <laughs> but we've renamed it the Julianne Moore Award for overacting <laughs> because of her very unique performance in Magnolia. Julianne, Julianne Moore, obviously one of the greatest uh, actresses yes, ever. Uh-huh. But that's, a, that's I a, find it really hard to believe this. Like it's uh, debunking Saul Rubinek <laughs> because <laughs> because look, I wrote the character. <laughs> And I didn't realize how funny he was until you guys started doing all his dialogue. Imagine, imagine Saul Rubinek's character. You stabbed me in the heart! 
that was like, when you do John Marley for the for Godfather, you're kind of doing Sal Rubinette. That's, that's probably true. Make me run, duck your loss. But did you, were you inspired by Marley to write Donnie Donowitz is the question. Yeah. That's the big question. You make me look ridiculous. She had a great voice. <laughs> look, my olive crap, oil voice. My crap, Mick friend. <laughs> so, okay, so she the, was beautiful. <laughs> For the purposes of this podcast, it is still the Saul Rubinek Award okay. for overacting. I don't know. Killian Murphy? Yeah, yeah. 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 If, if anyone's going to get it. Yeah, he's right. He's really— Yeah. You got somebody? No, it's Killian Murphy. He's the only one that has, like, a really dramatic moment. I mean, most of the other time, it's just sheer terror and survival. Um, Apex Mountain. Now, this is Quentin be- already stepped on this a little bit, but it's. I think it's a really good and deep conversation. Yeah. Um, so it's Harry Styles. We're agreed. <laughs> Apex Mountain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, is it is it Nolan? So this is the first time Nolan was nominated for Best Director. Mm-hmm. And that seems strange, actually, yeah. when you think about it that way, given his his life's work. But this was a big hit, not as big a hit as some of the movies that came before it. It's an amazing achievement. It's an achievement movie, I think, in a lot of ways. There are certain directors who you go through their filmography and you say, oh, this is a movie I liked watching. And then you look at other films and you think, you know, Titanic in some ways is an achievement for Cameron, yeah. even though we might like aliens more. Right. Yeah, yeah. So right. is this for Nolan Apex Mountain because of what it achieves, because of what it did for him as a filmmaker, because of what it allowed for him to happen in the future? I I would say yes for me for all those reasons. Okay. You know, um, if you're going for a Apex Mountain heat check. I think it would either be Dark Knight or Inception. Mm -hmm. But he still hadn't revealed. As bad of an ass as he was, he still hadn't shown how bad of an ass he could be. Right. And I think that when he did Dunkirk, he put himself up with the greatest in the world. And I think he was already there. Even if you like this one and you don't care for that one. And and there's a few that I feel that way about. Sure. Um, but um, but this I, I it brought him to the mountain as far as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. So I think that to get specific about it, the difficulty with giving this Apex Mountain is that we haven't seen the film he's done since then, right? So we haven't gotten the next movie since Dunkirk yet. Mm-hmm. So yep. yeah, and I would probably say for me it's Inception, if also because this is insane to me that it, I'm saying Inception. Yeah, we keep going. Because that's the one where he gets away from, from Batman. So that and that's mm-hmm. the one where it shows like you can make a movie like this that is an original story that people don't have this pre-existing relationship to these characters or these or, or any of these ideas, and you can make it as big as Batman was. You can make it as big as Dark Knight was, and it showed that he was able to make his own versions of these movies without having to rely on 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 DC essentially. I, I I think that's a lot of promotion. I think it was the was the movie was sold. You think you feel like it's so you feel like it's I'm re, I'm reacting more to marketing than I yeah, am. Yeah, I I, I I I really do. I think that movie was sold. It was a it it was it was a product that was sold. Yeah, hmm. they learned how to eventize the Nolan brand in a way that was effective that ultimately pays off on. Dunkirk oh, I should also say I, I fucking love Inception. Yeah, no, I know you. Do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, like, I'm a little more lukewarm. Yeah, but. Here's the thing. I'm a, I'm, I'm more lukewarm. Okay. Exception too. So, but I'm not trying to hold that against a no, 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 no. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the tricky part of the case that you're making, Quentin, to me, is that, and this might bum you out, but I think it's true. Mm-hmm. I think that The Dark Knight's the most important movie of the century. I don't think it's the best movie. I don't even think it's one of the 100 best movies. But I think it's the movie 
that reset the brain chemistry of the industry, the academy, and common moviegoers. And it's really hard to make a movie that can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we can hold against it the fact that it's DC and that it's a comic book movie, but its impact, not just its box office, not just its awards, but its impact on people is huge. It's so vast in a way that a movie like Dunkirk might not ever be. Okay, but okay, so I go along with that, but does that make it Batman's apex <laughs> and not Nolan? That's a yeah. good question. Yeah. Um, pr- I mean, I would guess that. It, uh, yeah, it will absolutely. Be. Is yeah. Batman's apex? Well, we haven't well, seen well, no, Matt well, Reeves as the Batman. No, no, but well, no, but also we're we're shit canning uh, uh, Neil Adams too. All true, right, by true. say by giving yeah. that to uh, a movie. Yes, that's that's exactly. Or <laughs> so, Frank Miller or any number yeah, of yeah, people. Yeah. yeah. Outside the Apex Mountain discussion, do you guys think that Dunkirk is Nolan's best movie? Is it your or favorite? Is your favorite Nolan movie? I think I think yes and yes. It definitely is my favorite. It's definitely the one I respond to the mm-hmm. most. Um, yeah, it is. Okay. I have a very warm feeling towards Memento. Now, I realize the circumstances of making a movie like Memento and Dunkirk are totally different, but there's a level of invention happening in that movie that I'm, I'm still interested in. Also, kind of similarly rewatchable. Things work better or don't work better when you revisit. I would, I would put a Dunkirk one. I would put Batman Begins 2. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would have to give it to Dark Knight three, but I actually enjoy the Prestige more. Mm. Yeah, that's an unspoken movie on this wow. show so far, which is interesting. Prestige I'm on is, Inception Island here. Well, <laughs> listeners of this show know how I feel about Inception, unfortunately. Yes. Um, but we're we're truly by ourselves. <laughs> yes, I know. No, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Well, what can you do? Um, all right, so it is Christopher Nolan's Apex Mountain. We'll agree on that for now. I, I defer. Did yeah. I sell that? Really? Yeah. No, yeah. you did. No, you yeah. did. Yeah. Well, it's because he has – what comes for him in the future is kind of anything he wants, it seems like. Yeah. And that's – maybe that's really the clearest definition of Apex Mountain. Yeah, I would – you know, uh, uh, yeah, I would actually say that to some degree – he could do whatever he wanted at, at Warner Brothers uh, before Dunkirk, but I uh, – I think Dunkirk is his 2001, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like after that, and he truly is their Kubrick. Yes. In a world where David Fincher already exists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he's Warner's. So being Warner's and He's Warner's Kubrick. Yeah. Um, Picking nits. A couple of small things here. You'd you'd imagine that trying to remake um, a 1940 war movie is almost impossible to be perfectly period accurate. The Luftwaffe did not start painting fighter aircraft nose cones yellow until later in 1940. Do better, Chris. However, Christopher Nolan... Is, <laughs> that's not your Nicky Pitt. <laughs> no, no, no. That's just, a, that's just a problematic issue in the movie. Um, there's a whole bunch of these. Like, during the scene shot in Weymouth on a couple of occasions, the top of the Weymouth Sea Life Tower is visible, which was built circa 2012. I don't have a lot of nits to pick about mm. the way that the story is structured. Yeah. I no, think. I mean, if you can get over the actual structure of the story, it's hard to be like, why didn't you just swim back for him? You know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. But maybe we should pick some nits about the the British strategy heading into World War II. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to armchair quarterback <laughs> Churchill. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. that's the thing. Well, start with Chamberlain. Yeah. All right. That's, 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 that's my Nicky Pitt. Thrown. Yes. <laughs> Churchill, I think, is only 16 days into yeah, his tenure yeah. as prime minister. Yeah. Yeah. I think Czechoslovakia would have a few Nicky Pitt. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, any other nits to pick for you guys? Not? Yeah. No. No. Best quote. Well done. Well, we did it, survive. That's enough. That's the blind man talking to Alex on the way out of the movie. 
Mr. Dawson, men my age dictate this war. Why should we be allowed to send our children to fight it? Yo, this is a this is a pleasure yacht. Yo, 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 weekend sailors, not the bloody navy. And a man your age. Men my age dictate this war. Why should we be allowed to send our children to fight it? You should be at home. Then Commander Bolton on the mole. You can practically see it from here. And Captain Wenant asks, "What?" You can practically see it from here. What? Home. I think the the line the line that that gets you, especially in the British step upper lip kind of way. The like that's the, to me it was the only line that really stood out from the movie is when Kenneth Branagh. Goes, so far, so far, I'm staying for the French. Yes. You know, I mean that's yeah. that's the emotional piece of dialogue where okay, now that we've saved our boys and now we can fight another day, now I can afford to live up to our ideals. He gets all the best lines, to be honest. I mean, he also gets the one later in the film when he's talking to Wynett and they say they won't get up in this. The Royal Engineers are building piers from lorries. At least that should help when the tide comes back. And Bolton says, Well, we'll know in six hours' time. I thought the tides were every three. Then it's good that you're army and I'm navy, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good one, Which actually. Is, you know, there's a there are dashes of cleverness like but that. I would also say, and I made a note about this, is uh um Tom Hardy's monosyllabic performance that he gives, he has gestures that read like lies. He is a badass in this movie. And and I mean it's actually there's something so, you know, uh we need him in the film because I like the fact that we're following the the river rat guy and uh, and he's not necessarily heroic. He's just trying to survive and makes all the sense in the world. And then that Tom Hardy is just so incredibly heroic mm-hmm. and, 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 but it does, but not in a contrived way and not even uh, maybe it is in a little bit of a movie way, but we need it. Yeah. We it's need classical. It. Yeah. Yeah. But like, for instance, uh, um, he has two moments that to me are like lines. And that is, he's jotted down when he has to turn back and go home because of uh, the gas gauge and everything. And now's the time. Now's the time to turn back and go home. But he sees that he needs he needs to defend the uh, the ship, yeah, the me- medical ship. And so he stays, and he just gives a shrug, and it's just a shrug. He just gives a shrug, and the shrug means I'm not going home. Are you saying we need a new category called best gesture? Well, it's just, I, I, I'm saying that gesture is a line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the gesture is a line. And I actually think it, it happens the second time when it's, uh, he runs out of gas. We cut to him three different times before he actually finally lands. The second time we cut, he opens the cockpit. <laughs> So good. You know, and it's just, it's sailing. It's just like an air glider. It's just sailing through the air. There's no sound. Sound and just that opening, getting that real air and opening that cockpit. That's a line. That's uh, yeah, you're feeling that, Chris. Yes, I mean that the, the moments up there with him are, are are wonderful. And then like when I was rewatching that, I know that they had to re they had to shoot the all the city stuff, all the town stuff. They had to shoot in a different town because the town of Dunkirk was destroyed. So mm-hmm. they had to shoot that against a different background. But him coasting over that. That that shoreline in silence is yeah, it's as, as good as any any quote. Could this work as a ten episode Netflix show <laughs> in twenty nineteen? Well, almost the 
the, the point of what he did that's such an achievement is it could have been done that way, and that's how most people would think to do yes. it. Yes. That's exactly right. Dunkirk, the miniseries. Yes. yes. Just like there was Gettysburg yeah. or the North and the Checking South. Checking in on the Belgians. Yeah. Yes. yes. Episode six. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank God he didn't do that and made it so lean. Unanswerable questions. Was uh, Farrier, Tom Hardy's character, eventually rescued? Or was he uh, hauled off in a no, German was, prison no, camp? No, he's in a German yeah, prison yeah. camp. Absolutely, he's in a German prison yeah. camp. Yeah, I can't. That, I know, this is ridiculous, but I, if they want to make the Farrier POW camp movie. Yes, yeah, Stalag oh, 17 oh, with I'm, Farrier. Oh, Let's I am, go. I am there. Yeah. I, I mean, he can wear a mask again if he wants. I don't care. I'm there. And he probably wouldn't be escaping because he's, you know, he's, he's not a ground soldier. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He's there. So that means, you know, his job here is done. Right. If you could only watch, and that's a, and that's a long time. In so a, he would be. That's a long time in a POW. Uh, POW. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the beginning yeah, of the war. Yeah, yeah, we got five years. He would be the guy in the Great Escape with the cane walking around. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah some, James Donaldson. Yeah, yeah. try yeah. some gardening. Yeah, uh, if, you can't eat flowers. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you're here, Quinn. Um, if only one story, if you could only watch one story of the three in this movie, which one would you choose? Oh, the River Rat. It's his story. Within the world of the movie or if you were expanding it? Are we talking still like the 10-hour Netflix version of this? You're, you're going to the astral plane here. What do you mean? I mean, are we, are we, you want to show me 10 hours of from, from before he gets the call to take off in Dover or whatever? And no, no, get- no. Just, just in terms of what we see in the film. If you could elongate and stretch out and sort of like movie eyes, because the movie is not a movie. It's, it, its shape and structure doesn't feel like a movie except for those— Moments of Quentin's talking about. It would, it would be River Rat. I, I think that the, the, the... That's the man escape. Collins, that's the Besson. Collins yeah. and Far- Farrier in the air is the most, you know, that's like the blockbuster up there. That's top mm-hmm. of the fucking gun, you know. But like, mm-hmm. you you don't want, you can't spend the entire time up there. There's no dynamism if, if you stay up there the entire time. Okay, I want the... It is, it is his survival and it's the one damn thing after another after another and he keeps... Yeah. It's probably the thing we understand the least about that whole story, too, which is mm-hmm. what it was like to be a person who was in that situation. Yeah. One more unanswerable question. Was this movie snubbed in 2017? I think so. What one instead? Uh, Shape of Water. Shape okay. of Water. So it's tricky, right? Because we all know that these things are not awarded at the appropriate time necessarily all mm-hmm. the time. But this is an interesting one because we everybody has located, like, if this is not as the Apex Mountain, it's damn close. Mm-hmm. And then does that mean... Christopher Nolan goes to the, the the Academy's mountain 10 years from now for a film that is not the same achievement as a movie like Dunkirk. We may look back at it that way. I think I think that's we've learned that time and time again, but this does feel like the kind of movie that typically gets rewarded at that time. And I wonder if it being and if it's a July movie, mm-hmm. you had a July movie this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Did that hurt? So did you think it, if this comes out Thanksgiving or Christmas is different? I don't know. I really candidly couldn't say. Uh I don't want to. I'm not going to weigh in on the academy politics of uh, uh, something as hot, and then all of a sudden, you come the last two months of the two months of the year, uh, it, it cools for whatever reason. Um, I think it was. Look, I think it was snub. I think for the the fact that the uh, the score didn't win, I think is the snub. I think uh, the fact that he didn't get nominated for a best screenplay is a snub. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, a big snub, a big snub, because that's a pretty fantastic i mean if if we're saying that he can't do it wrong at a certain point right that he you know because it's just all storytelling but it's not storytelling with a pen it's storytelling with 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 a uh, uh, scissors and it's storytelling with music and it's storytelling with images and um and frankly to tell you the truth i can't believe uh, his cinematographer didn't win. yeah, yeah. Hoytema, Hoytema. Yeah. uh yeah. so 
who also shot Ad Astra, actually. Yeah. So um, I think I wonder if you, either of you guys think maybe just because it was like a 76 or 78 page script, if that was held against it, maybe it, it being a slim volume. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe. I, I I guess we could kind of take it back to the beginning here where you were talking about your best of the decade. And, and it's I, I wonder whether or not this is a movie that's going to grow in estimation as the years go by, especially as we get to these end of the decade and probably, you know, the 20, first 20 years of the century lists that we will inevitably be doing. I, you know, it's it's, it's relevant to, to that, too, is how do movies go into the canon now? What do you mean by that? Well, we abs- we absorb them differently. And there's all this anxiety about um, repertory houses not not having as much opportunity to show films. And this movie is only two and a half years old. We all agree that it's an incredible film. But how does it stay in the consciousness for us? You know, is is Nolan, will he let it appear on Netflix so that people can consume it over and over again? And then all of a sudden it bleeds into our brain the way mm-hmm. that something might have for us in the 80s? Or Well, I think that that is how movies exists whether it's on uh, whether it's on rotation on Showtime Extreme or yeah. Show or Cinemax this or or Netflix that I mean that's I actually think that is how movies become part of the lexicon is it, they have its time me realizing that Zodiac was a great movie wasn't from the from that first viewing which mm. I actually thought was a bit of an endurance test mm. the first time I watched the movie I liked it but it was I wasn't loving it sitting in the theater but it stayed with me for like two weeks afterwards. I, I found I, I thought about it every day for like a couple of weeks. And then when it started showing up uh, on um, HBO, it would be on. And then I'd watch it for like 20, 25 minutes straight. Yeah. And then I was like, holy shit. I, and I was really involved. And wherever it happened to, wherever it happened to fall. And so I kind of watched it about three different times at wherever it just happened to be. And I think those are the tests that actually make a, you know, that, uh, uh, that the forges a film in, in fire for your, you know, for your memory. I mean, what you're describing is literally the inspiration for us doing this show. <laughs> it is because we grew up catching 25 minutes of a movie on cable and just feeling it uh, seep into our DNA. But the, the interesting thing about this movie is that you're only ever f- two minutes away from something extraordinary happening. Mm. You know, and you may not always have the, the sort of lay of the land and be able to say, like, I understand the emotional stakes of what's going on here. But if you understand the emotional stakes of the entire movie, anytime you tune into it, no matter which dogfight or which escape from which sinking boat you're watching, something amazing is going to be on your screen. And I, I think it's a testament to his filmmaking that if you watch it on on your laptop or if you happen to see it on a passing television, it still plays. You know, if you if 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 you're on an airplane and across the aisle somebody is watching it. And you just kind of start glancing at it. You'll find yourself mm-hmm. watching it silently across the room for at least ten minutes. Yeah, completely. There's one more question: Who won the movie? Now, now, hold on. Okay, hold on, <laughs> hold on, Quinn. Nolan is an obvious answer. I think Styles. Styles. Styles wins every category. I think we have to give it to, to Finn Whitehead because we just have been merciless with him poor, today. Poor kid. Now hold on. the what the, the I other, would be okay with that. I, he's terrific in the movie. I haven't been putting him down. No, right he's, now. he's good. He's good. He just doesn't have a name. Uh Zimmer. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a that's great too. That's you could you read a review of this movie in which his name did not appear? It would be impossible. Also. Did the Battle of Dunkirk win Dunkirk? <laughs> because I feel like, you know, I'm some jerk from New York. I don't have a significant 
wealth of knowledge. I'm, yeah. I've but seen now this you as think Miniver, it, but, but I didn't think you, about Dunkirk. Yeah, you know? but now you think about it the way you think about the Battle of the Bulge or the exactly. Ardennes. Yes, exactly. It, <laughs> yes. it historicized something that was already history, but for me, yeah. I have a new relationship to it, and I think it's really, really important, and I didn't mm-hmm. used to think it was important. Yeah. And is it possible that this, this battle defeated the filmmaker? No. Okay. <laughs> really isn't. I made my bid. I, I, no, I, no, I like I, I like, I like, I like, I like the saying. idea. I like okay. the idea, yeah. Okay. But you guys are going no uh, Well, you... Come on. You got me thinking about Hans Zimmer. Mm. I actually, you know, I, I even think there could even be, dare I say, a slight redemption of of, of his persona because mm-hmm. it's he's also a guy that's easy to make fun of a little bit. Yep. Yeah. And... Same After way the Nolan is, like yeah, you described yeah. earlier. Yeah, but I. You yeah, but, that, but that's it. just being a. That's just being a catty asshole. Yeah. But I think there is a rehabilita- rehabilitation of reputation. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm not going to make any more Hans Zimmer jokes. Not that I ever did before, but 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 you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. And after this, it's like no, fuck it. It's a cementation of being truly great at his thing, being an yeah. individual icon of his specific craft. Um, it, it's still, I, I think we'll all agree. It's gotta be Christopher Nolan who's the winner of the movie. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think you could yeah. like, there's, there's lots of like really good silver and bronze here. There's the RAF. Shout out to those guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to your, your grandfather. <laughs> but it's, it's Nolan. Yeah. Guys, any closing thoughts on Dunkirk? This has been very fun. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, well, and I, well, I, I also, I've never had from all, from the different episodes I've watched. Uh, I've listened to of the rewatchables. It's been very easy for every movie to fall into the structure of yeah. the show. The fact that this movie refuses to fall into at least half of the categories. Yeah, I mean, it just refuses it. It just refuses it. No, no. It, uh, it that says something else about that says something else about the movie. I mean, the fact that. Um, you just wanted to fuck with us. You said, yeah, I've got an idea for a movie, and it's not going to work for the show, but I have an idea. Well, you know, it's like the fact that you could actually say that the entire film is paced like a trailer and actually mean that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because as, 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 as opposed to a, 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 a snippy thing that, like, makes it seem like a commercial or makes it seem like just sensation for sensation's sake. No. This is I've actually I've waited my whole life to see a movie that actually plays like a trailer, but in a great way. It maintains that sense of anticipation the entire yeah. time. Mm-hmm. That's really that's really an achievement. Guys, this has been fantastic for Christopher Ryan <laughs> and Quentin Tarantino. I've been Sean Fennessy. This is the Rewatchables. Mm-hmm.